is an Odyssey original. This is KDX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman, a possible serial killer terrorizing people near the campus of UC Davis. Three people stabbed, two dead. We'll go in depth. Russia says Ukraine tried to assassinate Vladimir Putin, but that might not be true. And something that makes us feel good is making dogs sick. But we start with the uh, stabbings near UC Davis. With us are UC Davis students, Leah Graham and Chris Ponce. Chris is the city editor of the student newspaper, the California Aggie. And Mike Vitilio is a criminal law scholar at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. All of you, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Let me start uh, with uh, you, Leah uh, and Chris. Uh, the mood or the concern on your campus is what? Um, I think it's very tense, uh, very high stress. It's kind of unnerving and something nobody's really experienced yet so far. Yeah, definitely. Things are very uncertain and they're very anxious and it, it can be felt throughout the campus and throughout the city right now. Is there concern this is a serial type of situation? Uh, yes, there is concern. I believe the last update we've had on this was um, from a city council meeting where Police Chief Peidel, uh mentioned that it's more probable than not that these are linked or uh, one person. And can you give us an idea, uh, Chris or Leah, who has been injured, who has been killed? Were they students, faculty, what? Yeah, so um, the first victim was Debbie, uh, David Henry Bro, who was a community member, an unhoused individual who uh, was a pillar of the community. Um, you couldn't, many people knew who he was, and he dedicated his life to answering what compassion is. Um, he was beloved, well-known by city council members, activists in the city. Um, and the second victim was a student, uh, Karim Abunam, who was an honor student set to graduate this spring. Um, and the third victim was another uh, of a stabbing was another unhoused individual. And Mike, this question for you. Uh, in these situations, if this is some kind of serial person doing this uh, in a serial fashion, and uh, it appears uh, this person would be using the school as a hunting ground, uh, what are ways to protect against that, and what should the police, in your opinion, be doing? Uh, well, there's a lot to, to unpack in your question. Uh, first of all, let me just put something in context. In a way, it would be good news if it were a serial killer rather than multiple people out there doing imitation crimes, for example. Um, one of the things, of course, is just to increase awareness uh, about your surroundings. Uh, don't take risks. Uh, so my wife was going out for a walk the other day and was going to go in a slightly isolated way. And my quick advice to her was that's probably not the best thing to do. Uh, walk uh, with friends, uh, uh, be careful about uh, location and the like. Uh, I do want to point something else out. Uh, it's not just the campus. Uh, it only, uh, in fact, uh, nobody has actually been stabbed on campus. The ironically, the student uh, who was stabbed was stabbed within about 50 yards from where I live, sitting right here in a suburban neighborhood. So it, it's not on campus. But again, I think the best advice would be uh, be sensible. Uh, look around. 
Um, good advice at all times. Thank you so much. UC Davis students Leah Graham and Chris Ponce, also a Mike Vitiello, criminal law scholar at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Felder. Uh, still to come on the show, more and more dogs getting sick from something we don't think about tossing out too much. Right now, though, it is day number two. This is going to be one of those stories, I, I hope not for the writer's day, sake and for the sake of uh, uh, the producers, but I have a feeling this could be one of those stories that become numbers, you know, day two, day eight. You know, <laughs> day kind of 84. Thing. Yeah, and of course we're talking about the Hollywood uh, writer's strike. Uh, Catherine Arnold is an entertainment consultant, film producer, and executive with more than 20 years' experience in the industry. Catherine, thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. So let me ask you, uh, as as somebody who has produced films, right, and maybe you still do, I'm not quite sure, but if, if you do, uh, you can see it, I would think, from the producer's point of view. So I want to take that first, and then we can get to the writers, of course, but what is the producer's point of view on this, and do they have valid points? The writers. Do the writers have valid points? No, no. I want to. Do, I, I want to start with producers first. Okay, great. Got it. Uh, well, you know, both sides have valid points. The producers are always looking to be cost effective and efficient and save money wherever they can. However, at the same time, you know, there's a difference between feature writers, which write theatrical movies that have a certain amount of money they're paid, and then the television television writers, which are paid on the episodic. So, from a producer standpoint, we always want to save money, but we all so want to make sure that people can survive when they're doing the job with the writers in this case. So it's a complex kind of look at both production costs and the talent and available talent that you can get for a price that makes sense for your production. And uh, uh, turning to the writers, do they have a point? Because uh, everybody talks about it's a different world now. They're streaming and everything. And that's certainly true from the mechanical uh, standpoint. But I'm talking about the creative standpoint. Uh, writers now creating shows for streaming that are some of the best television that we have seen in the in the modern age. I mean, really, really good writing. Theatrical feature uh, Oscar-winning style of writing that's going into these uh, eight-episode, ten-episode TV shows on streaming services. Do they have a point that they are doing better work and the pay is just not commensurate with the work they're doing? Well, you're absolutely right. The content has gotten so amazingly um, powerful on streaming particularly. And, yes, there are those writers that come from the feature world that are experienced, but they're going to get paid more. I think the strike really, if you want to look at it closely, is focused on the writers that are at the lower end of the pay scale because the writers that are coming off of Oscar-winning films and so forth are getting paid more. So that's, they're more interested in what happens in the back end and the profit participation, which is a whole other subject. But the upfront writer's fees that are really causing the most havoc are those for the writers that are at the minimum basic agreement pay scale, which means at the lower end, where because they're writing less number of episodes each series, whereas they used to write, let's say, 22 episodes for a network series, as you said, maybe now they're being paid for six, eight, or ten episodes. But the time span uh, within which they're writing now has been extended because the productions are more elaborate, everybody's giving more notes, the time span may go into 20, 30 weeks. So even though they're getting paid on an episodic basis, 6, 8, or 10, they could be working for 20, 30 weeks. And if they're only earning the minimum basic 
fee agreements, price uh, minimum basic agreement fees, then they're just not getting paid enough over time because they can't take right. other shows. Yeah, Catherine, let, 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 let me ask you, I, I, I kind of want you to, to speak to, at the moment, uh, a different audience. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. Okay. Okay. Um, because there are a lot of people in the city, and I get it. There are a lot of people who work in industries that are dependent on Hollywood, and, sure. and they're not making, of course, the money that the writers do or the directors and, and God knows the some of the stars. Uh, but they're making a good living because they're dependent on it. But there are an awful lot of people in this town listening maybe to this who are working in jobs that pay a whole lot less uh, than any of these writers make, whether they're working for 26 episodes or 10 episodes. And are probably thinking, why do I care about this? These folks are making more money than I'm ever going to see in my lifetime. Speak to them. Sure, that makes total sense. And like I was saying earlier, there are some writers that are making more money than I will see ever in my lifetime, to be honest. But there are also writers that are working at a pay scale that when you extend it, it's this time span thing that's the most important, right? Because it's, it's not a weekly pay scale anymore. When an episode is being written over three, four, five weeks, that same amount of money gets stretched. So when you divide it by the number of weeks that are actually getting paid, some of these people are saying, and, and I haven't heard this myself, but some of these writers are saying that when it gets divided over the amount of time, it comes down to minimum wage numbers. Now, I, I can't attest to that because I haven't done the math myself. But this is what we're hearing from the lawyers that are representing these writers and from the agents and from the writers themselves. So even though it seems like they're making thousands of dollars, if you see that number in front of an episode, if you stretch it over, let's say they're making six episodes, but you stretch it over eight, nine, ten months, it divides it down to a much smaller number. So I don't think that these people are screaming that they can't pay for their family's you know, uh, living expenses if they weren't. So there's a large range of writers that you have to consider. It's not the high-priced writers that we're really focused on right now. It's those lower, newer writers who are being asked to work weeks and weeks and months and months and not necessarily even getting paid for it, especially in the beginning stages of a production. That's All right. Thank you so much. We could get into for the the mini rooms, but we could talk about it. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. It's a lot to talk about. It Sorry is. About thank that. you. Uh, well, I, 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 I presume that we are going to be talking about the writer's strike for some time. Uh, I, I get the feeling, and maybe you do too, that this is going to continue on for uh, for a little while at least. But Catherine Arnold, thank you uh, so much for uh, joining us today. Russia says Ukraine trying to assassinate Vladimir Putin in a drone attack. But can we really believe that? I can hear in the audience many eyes rolling. Uh, John Spencer is a retired U.S. Army major and chair of urban welfare studies at the Madison Policy Forum, also co-author of a book called Understanding Urban Warfare. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So when I make a snarky remark about uh, 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 eye rolls out there being uh, audible, uh, is, is that the case? Do most people just hear that and go, uh-huh, yeah, right? Yeah, and if they've seen the evidence or the video that Russia used to support their statement, it's almost like, you know, I, I tell my kid fairy fairy tales, but this is, I mean, it's just ridiculous that a this small drone is going to try to assassinate Putin, and I put that in quotations, at 2 a.m. in the morning with a little, uh, a very small drone that happens to explode above the Kremlin. It's just ridiculous. Well, let me point out that uh, I was just looking on my phone. So the New York Times uh is now reporting that it has it doesn't doesn't say how it did it, 
it says that it has verified the video, that it has convinced the New York Times that the video that we can all see on social media is real, uh, raising the only question of who actually sent the two little drones. Uh, was it Ukrainians, which, would, which is what the Russians are saying, or was it yeah. a, a false flag operation to give the Russians a pretext to escalate their war with Ukraine? Right. I mean, there's a long list of people that would that would want to do it. A lot of people that hate Putin, that don't agree with the war in Ukraine. And on that list of the people that shit would likely have done this, Ukraine's not on it. Because like you said, I don't even call this a false flag because usually false flags are like hidden in their intentions and who's done the, who did it and things like that. This is almost like comedy show that somebody would believe one. It's not the type of drone that could come from Ukraine. So it, it came from within Russia. That if it was an actual lethal attempt, it would be an, a different type of drone. Putin doesn't even stay in the Kremlin. He stays in a bunker outside the Kremlin. It, it's just just silly talk. But yes, so the May 9 celebration day for the Russians of victory over Nazis, Nazis and, and evil in Europe, and it's funny, they're the ones doing the evil in Europe, is coming up. This could be an excuse for why they can't do it. Or like you said, they need to escalate their war, illegal war in Ukraine. Does Russia have a history, especially recently, of doing things like this, whereas uh, we don't know, a false flag or however you want to uh, typify this, quote, drone attack, unquote, maybe it was something totally unrelated or an accident or or somebody trying to make a, a stunt or a statement. But whatever, uh, Russia does have a history of taking things like this and using it for their own propaganda ends, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, one, they have a more history of lying than they do telling the truth. But also of just making up stories to justify, like Putin saying that Ukraine doesn't exist as a nation, so he invaded it. I mean, it, it is a long list of what they do, yes. You know, the other thought that comes to me has absolutely nothing to do with Ukraine or with Russia. But it does have to do with this. If, in fact, as the as I said, the New York Times says, uh, these drones, tiny as they are, but apparently laden with some explosive material, uh, and wherever they came from, did manage to go off uh, basically in the backyard of the Kremlin. What's to stop something like that happening in our own capital? Right. So this is actually a sign. So it's funny that Krem the Kremlin wants to make this statement because it's a, it's a giant sign of weakness. There's electronic warfare. There are active uh, weapons that shoot down drones. All things that are normal to protect sensitive sites like capitals, this would not happen in the United States. This doesn't happen in the Kremlin. So it, that's why this is so silly. Like, if this really happened, it's a huge sign of weakness for the capital that a, a bomb-laden drone penetrated all the air defenses, all the electronic warfare, because it blocks the signals for GPS-guided drones, things like that. And this thing exploded on top of the Kremlin. Yeah, it wouldn't happen here, to be honest with you. But to Charles' point, uh, I seem to recall, maybe my memory is faulty, but I seem to recall somebody flying some kind of drone onto the White House grounds at some point. I mean, it wasn't armed with anything, didn't have any explosive material, but the fact that he was able to fly that drone onto the grounds, I think, caused quite a bit of a stir. So it can happen. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there there are differences in drones. There are different um, how they're guided. There, it is a, a 
troubling part of the future of everything. And it's almost this action counter reaction. So I do know what you're talking about, but like you said, it wasn't a, an armed drone. There's ways to get around kind of the, the defenses of an offensive capabilities to protect sensitive sites. And, and it, there are always people trying to probe it from, you know, cyber to actual striking important sites. But again, it's a kind of action reaction thing. Right. Oh, somebody's trying to find a loophole, but to get this drone into the Kremlin, it, it's a giant sign of weakness. Just like it would be if somebody did that to the White House, oh. it, it it would be it would be huge on their end and and embarrassing. All right, thanks so much, uh, John Spencer, retired U.S. Army major. You're listening to KNX in depth. He's Rob Archer, and I think I'm Charles Felt. Yes, and welcome back. By the way, Thank we you. Uh, we definitely missed you while you were gone. So good to have you back in studio, my friend. Thank you, Mr. Geister. The uh, Federal Reserve is oh, now. The... I feel all weepy. Yeah, let's. Do you want a hug? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Federal Reserve has done it again. It raised a key interest rate today by a quarter of a percentage point to the highest level in 16 years. With these uh, interest rates going up today, of course, that makes people uh, wonder and and worry about some things like if they have uh, variable interest rates loans, like, right. like many of us do on credit cards, is it going to affect that? And, of course, you've got uh, savings account, other investments that you make, and, and what's that going to do to businesses? And And one of the things that the Fed is apparently interested in looking at is that – you know, we have this banking issue, as you know, that has been going on for quite some time now with smaller regional banks, but they're not that small. And in some cases, they're not that regional. And the the question, I think, on the minds of all the Fed officials is, is there now enough uh, confidence the public has in banks that perhaps they should ease off on, con- you know, the continuation of rising, uh, raising interest rates, because that only makes people more kind of freaked out about the state, real or perceived, uh, of our economy. And, you know, the idea behind raising the interest rates is to cool the economy off a little bit so that uh, inflation doesn't run out of control. And uh, one looking at it from the street level would say, I I think it's working. So why are we still doing these interest rate uh, hikes? But, of course, we are hearing that they're saying this is going to be lasting for a while. With us is Gus Fauché. He is a chief economist at PNC Financial Services Group. Uh, What we were speculating on here is what moves the Fed uh, is likely to make in the months ahead, considering that we have undergone and maybe are still in the middle of a sort of banking crisis. Yeah, there's no question but that higher interest rates have exposed some problems in the financial system. Uh, I think given the fact that the Fed has raised the Fed funds rate from basically 0% in early 2022 to above 5%, excuse me, now, I think we see the Fed hold off. They want to see what the impact of the interest rate increases over the past year have on the economy. We're already seeing a significant slowing in the housing market. Uh, There are some indications that the job market, although it's still quite good, is slowing. And so I think the Fed wants to see what the impact of those rate increases we have experienced over the past year are, whether that's enough to slow inflation or whether after a few months they decide that they need to raise rates again. All right. So we're raising the rates and uh, on the street level uh, with people who use credit cards to buy goods and services and things they need. Are we going to see an immediate effect on that? Maybe a further tightening of people not buying as much stuff. And that's kind of something that they want. This is one of the reasons they do this, right? 
That's exactly right. By making it more expensive to borrow, they make it more expensive to go on vacation if you pay for it on your credit card, make it more expensive to buy a car, to buy a new house. And that cools off the economy, and that hopefully reduces inflation. Uh, those interest rate increases work on the economy with a lag, so we haven't felt the full impact of those yet. And in fact, probably won't feel the full impact of those rate increases until sometime in the second half of this year. You know, guys, I've asked this question on this show many times in the past. It's been a while, so I'll ask it again. Uh, you know, historically, the Fed doesn't have a great track record of getting these things right when they want to do soft landings. Uh, what are the odds, do you think now, that they might actually hit this one out of the ballpark? I, I think it's pretty low. I think given the higher interest rates that we've seen over the past year or two, I think that there's probably a two-thirds, 70% chance we get a recession starting sometime in the second half of this year. The good news, relatively good news, is that the recession should be mild. Uh, you know, the banking system, in spite of these recent failures, is generally in good shape. Uh, households, on average, still have a lot of money saved up, and we're starting from a very strong labor market. Uh, so I do think that we would, will get a mild recession, but it's going to look a mo- lot more like the recession that we had in the early 2000s early, or the early 1990s uh, rather than the recession that we had from 2007 through 2009 or the, the recession associated with the pandemic. So, Gus, what you seem to be telling me is that I should hold off. I need to get a new iMac, but I should hold off, right? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> don't go to the store today. Still, you know, a lot of consumers are still in good shape. You know, their jobs are secure. Uh, maybe they have money saved up. Uh, but, you know, if you're on the margin, if you're concerned about your financial situation, then you might want to hold off until interest rates start to fall again, which I think will start to happen later this year. And then that purchase might make a little more sense. All right. Thank you so much. Gus uh, Fauché, Chief Economist at PNC Financial Services Group. You're listening to KDX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Charles Feldman. You know, if you have a dog, you know that dogs like to often, you know, eat whatever people are eating, right? Anything. They, and well, anything. It's and like, not, not just what people eat, but anything. Yeah, they come over, you have those little sort of sad eyes. It's yeah. like, you know, give me that steak. You know? <laughs> uh, but if you're the type of person who smokes pot or maybe eats an edible, you may want to be really careful with your stash and your trash. And that's because more and more dogs are getting sick from marijuana. Veterinarian Dr. Kelly Deal is with the Morris Animal Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. So what's happened? What's happening here? Are the dogs turning into potheads or uh, is it just they're <laughs> they're eating anything they see on the ground? And if you leave something on the ground, guess what's going to happen? I think it's the latter. You know, dogs, I have a Labrador, so she'll eat anything. And a lot of dogs just find a lot of pot products really yummy and they will sample them and sometimes get into a bit of trouble with that. Has it ever happened to you and your dog? Uh, no, but as a veterinarian, going back to, I hate to date myself, 1988, I have seen a fair number of cases of marijuana ingestion. And of course, with legalization, we're seeing way more than we used to. And what does a case of marijuana ingestion look like for a dog? Like a lot like what you would think if you overindulged. <laughs> so a lot I mean, they of go, these they dogs... go into the closet looking for like potato chips. <laughs> what do they, they get do? Munchies. <laughs> yeah. Um, and not quite, though. I wouldn't be surprised, but they can look very odd. And in fact, it's kind of frightening for a lot of 
pet owners, unless they know, right, that their dog got into it, they'll stagger around, they'll seem really out of it. They can, a, a hallmark, which is kind of interesting, is some dogs will get uh, urinary incontinence, which is a tip off that they actually got into marijuana because that's kind of an unusual sign for other toxins that they can ingest. They can be, um, sometimes they get twitchy actually. So they can go in the other direction, be kind of really hypersensitive that's, to that's sounds That's bad news or for noise. a chihuahua then. <laughs> it, it, it is. They can they can get really excited and it can be somewhat dose dependent. So smaller dogs may be more affected if they eat more than larger dogs. But a lot of what you might expect, the problem for us as veterinarians, other than that urinary incontinence that I talked about, is this can look a lot like more serious intoxication, such as uh, antifreeze. So if you suspect that your dog has ingested your leftover stash, um, what should you do? Do you take the dog to vet? Do you, do you, I don't know, put on music that it likes? What do you do? <laughs> it depends a little bit on how affected that they are and whether you have a pretty clear sense that they got into a marijuana product, right? If I came home and I found my dog acting weird and I really didn't know what they get got into. First of all, I would absolutely call my local veterinarian. And if they seemed really out of it, because some of these dogs can become almost comatose, I would absolutely rush that dog to the veterinary clinic. The problem is there's no really good test that we can use to diagnose marijuana toxicity. Toxicity. Sometimes it's more a diagnosis of exclusion unless somebody comes in and says, hey, look, I came home. The dog got into the brownies and I know that that, uh, you know, I know that they had that exposure. And that goes to another point, which is the most serious intoxications we're seeing is when dogs get into that really difficult combination, right, of marijuana and chocolate. Mm, yeah. Uh, does this also happen with cats? Because as everybody will tell you, cats are different from dogs. I can barely get my cat to eat the expensive cat food that I buy for him to eat. <laughs> uh, but cats do sometimes eat things they should not eat. Uh, do you see this happen with cats? And are the symptoms and problems that would arise from that different than it would be for a dog? The symptoms are reported to be the same, but as you just mentioned, cats seem to be more discriminating eaters. And even though there's been a rise in calls to poison control about cats and potential exposure, it is much, much less than what we see with dogs. So it seems to not be a big problem. I actually, in you know nearly 40 years, knock on wood, of practice, I have not seen a cat get into marijuana. See, Rob, I think if you come home one day and right. you find your cat like listening to jazz, right, right away, that's yeah. a clue. Yeah. Right away. More Pink Floyd, you know, yeah. then something's <laughs> going on. All right. right. Uh, so uh, best practices, uh, as you would do, you're a veterinarian, you're aware of these things. If you do have a stash, I'm sure you keep it safe. So just uh, be very, very careful. But sometimes it's not about throwing a butt onto a ground or dropping a gummy on the floor. Sometimes it's about people being unaware or and sometimes it's about dogs getting into where the stash is. So what should you do? Lock it up and make sure your dog doesn't get the key. Yeah, kind of like that. I often tell people the easiest way to think about it is what would you do for a toddler or a kid, right? Like as far as taking care of keeping those materials away from them and stuff happens, right? Uh, 
you know, the cat knocks. I've had people say cat knocked edibles off counter, dog opened them up. That was on purpose. And ate them. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Uh, So I, I think taking care of that, being aware of the signs, right? And I have had people who are like, there's no way they could get at it. And sure enough, they did. I In drawers, I mean, you name it. And being aware that, that of what the signs are, like I just said, and making sure that you don't just blow it off, um, no pun intended, because I've had some people think it's hilarious or people call me and it, it is not always really funny. And some dogs need supportive care. I had a call the other day from someone who had a 15-year-old dog that got into their stash and was unconscious for about 12 hours. And that dog needed some supportive care, especially if a pet has an underlying problem. If your dog had, for example, like kidney disease and didn't drink for 12 hours, that could result in some serious side effects. I had friends in college who were out for way longer than 12 12 hours. (laughs) Way longer. All right. Thank you, uh, veterinarian Dr. Uh, Kelly Deal. Talked about keeping your stash away from your pets. So once again, Charles, welcome back. So I I want to clear something up. Were you suggesting before that the cat was trying to get the dog hot? Oh, I would not put it past the cat. By knocking it over? Yeah. uh, You know, cats. I mean, when my cat gets up on the uh, coffee table and looks at me when I want dinner, and then it looks at all the expensive things sitting on the table and then kind of looks at them and can tell which one is the most expensive and then pushes that one off. Huh. Cats do things on purpose. We all okay. know. Well, right? we, we need to hear from cats now. In fairness. <laughs> in fairness. <laughs> fairness. Yeah. That's a KNX In-Depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow.